How should we read the Bible? How should we read the Bible? Last time I was with you in Acts, here we are studying the, Peter's first sermon in the New Covenant. This is the first sermon after Pentecost, the first New Testament sermon, an inspired sermon. This is a Holy Spirit approved sermon. So we do well to ask the question of the sermon. What should we hear in a sermon? How should the ministry at Covenant Reformed Church, how sh what should we hear in the ministry at Covenant Reformed Church? We would hope that our ministers follow suit, would follow God's word and recognizing how to preach and how to hear God's word. But in order to do that, the ministers and we need to know how to read the word. We need to know how to read and, and handle the Bible. The Bible is clear that there are many ways to read the Bible. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2.15, writing to a young minister, Timothy. He says to Timothy, do your best, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Rightly handling the word of truth. And there, Paul, the implication being there's a wrong way to handle God's word. There's a right way to handle God's word. And so the question for us from this inspired sermon, as we see an apostle handle the word, a question that arises from the text, I think organically, a good question for us today is this. How does the Bible teach us to read the Bible? How does the Bible want us to read the Bible? That's the question I want to answer this morning. How does the Bible teach us to read the Bible. First off, we must begin with trust. The Bible wants us to trust the Bible. The Bible wants us to trust itself completely. You see, the Bible's suspect of your abilities. When you read the Bible, you begin to see that the Bible doesn't really trust you as a reader. It doesn't trust your artistic abilities doesn't like your reasoning, it cares little of your experience. It really trusts only itself. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah the prophet writes, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, this is the Hebrew way of saying your experiences are deceitful. Your reasoning is deceitful. Your artistic abilities, your ability to reason, to place yourself beside or beyond the Bible, well, it's just not good. It's desperately sick. He says, who can understand it? Who can understand? So the moment you think, hey, I'm doing okay with my reasoning, you're being deceived. You're deceiving yourselves. You see, the Bible wants you to trust itself implicitly. It wants implicit trust because it is explicit in the command to read it accurately. And so here's the first principle in Bible interpretation. Acts 2.25. Here Peter preaching a sermon after Pentecost. He's in mid-text. He's in mid-sermon, rather. We're just breaking in the middle of the sermon. And here he appeals to the Bible. He says, for David says, here he appeals to David, King David. David says concerning Jesus. Now, Peter's making a bold claim. Or rather, Peter's already made a bold claim in Acts 2.24. Read Acts 2.24, just a verse above. P 
Peter says, he's preaching the sermon. He says, God raised Jesus up. God raised him up, loosening, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is saying that it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. Why does Peter make a bold claim? Why could death not hold Jesus at bay? Why did death, why was death, which is so powerful in the world, it holds us all, yet for one, why? And Peter's answer is here. Because the Bible tells me so. Look, for David says concerning. David says. You see, here Peter is trusting what the Bible reveals. The first principle of Bible interpretation is faith. The first principle of Bible interpretation is faith. We must trust all that the Bible reveals as true. Do you hear that? Young people, we must trust all that the Bible reveals as true, even if it's contrary to the truth out there. You see, the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. We must trust it. We must trust it as Peter trust. We must trust it as Peter trusted Psalm 16, which is this verse, Acts 2.25. For David says concerning him, he appeals to Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Here, Peter, here we find David. Here we find David looking beyond this present world. David looked, a man after God's own heart. And here's really where we begin to see a man after God's own heart. He looked beyond the present world. He looked beyond the present circumstances. Even if presently everything looked terrible, he continued and was able to look beyond the terrible uh, adversary. He was, even be able, he was even able to look beyond the prosperity to see God. This is the eye of faith. And God's word teaches us to find God always here at our right hand. Always right hand. That's a, a place of power. A place of prestige. A place of strength. It's a gospel truth that when things presently look terrible, God is always present. He will never leave or forsake you. That is the truth of God's word. And that is the truth that drove David it is the truth of God's word that he cannot deny his promise to never leave or forsake you. God will never leave. He will never leave or forsake you. It is a truth. It's a word of God. It will not fail. Though we are shaken. David said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. We do fail as Christians, right? We are shaken. We are shaken to the core. We are shaken and, and bent broken, destroyed, and even put to death. But it is there where Paul writes to us, where the word of God says, even there we are more than conquerors. Even at death, we are more than conquerors. Through Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. So don't fear failing. Don't fear the fall. Because God is always there to pick us up. The Bible teaches us that God's grace is greater than our sin. The Bible gives us a love that overcomes all things. We must trust this word. We must trust these promises. 
Acts 2.26, because of the truth of God, David's heart was glad. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. David was glad. What's interesting with this gladness and with this rejoicing and the hope we see here, we know that David was a man vexed with many sorrows, right? Gripped by terror. Terror surrounded him. Thrown into the pit. His psalms sing and, 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 and sound the voices of one in terror, of one driven to despair, of one deep in the miry bog and so forth. But David says he was glad. Always glad. Because even in the sin and misery, he looked to God's saving grace. He knew that even in the sin and misery, there was one to redeem. There was a redeemer. That he was the redeemed. Even though it presently looked terrible, he's the redeemed. And not only adversity, but like I said, prosperity. When the Lord blessed him, he looked at God's common grace, recognizing that all things come from God, and he gave glory to God. It's that hope, that hope that God provides all that we need for body and soul and life and in death. And that truth guides us and directs our hope. And hope will not put us to shame. And this hope is found in the Word. And because God ordains the means as well as the end, we cannot simply just read the Bible, but we must read it accurately. You see, we must not only trust the Bible, and we must trust it, but we must handle it accurately. Now, the question for us this morning is this. How do we read the Bible? How do we read the Bible? It would be really great if there were examples in the Bible. Wouldn't it be really awesome if the New Testament read and interpreted the Old Testament? Wouldn't that be helpful for us as Christians? <laughs> if the New Testament read the Old Testament. Acts 2.27. That's what we see here. For you will not abandon my soul. Peter reading David. Peter in the New Covenant. Reading David. Peter in the New Testament. Reading the Old Testament. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. The word Hades there is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol. Both words, Hades, Sheol, mean uh, the place of the dead, uh, death, the grave, and so forth. Uh, and then corruption. Uh, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption there just means simply to rot. That's the lexical form, the lexical word, uh, to rot. And really what you are seeing here is Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry loves to make emphasis through this artistic reputation, repetition. So what David is really saying here with these two terms is one thing, the grave. You will not let me see the grave. I will not live in the grave. My life is not the grave. We see here that when we read the Bible, we must read it grammatically. We must recognize syntax. We must recognize genre. If you're reading poetry, you need to recognize the genre of poetry. If you're reading prose, you need to recognize prose and so forth. You need to be led grammatically, syntactically in your reading of the Bible. There's a place for reading. We don't just askew grammar and so forth. But there's a problem here, which we will see in a moment. We need grammar, but we also need a history of the Bible. We need grammar. We need history. Acts 2.29. Here's the problem. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. So David writes in 2.27, I won't be buried. I won't live there. 
but he's buried. And he says, Peter says, and his tomb is with us to this day. These are cold facts. David's tomb is mentioned in Nehemiah 3.16. It's biblical. He went to the grave. He's there. Matter of fact, his grave was entered and robbed, uh, was robbed during the siege of Jerusalem in 135 B.C. And a century later, Herod actually built a tomb, a monument of white marble at the entrance of the tomb. So when Peter was preaching this sermon, he could actually point to King David's tomb. His tomb, right on, you know, go down by the tree, take a left. By the old lady that sells the lemonade, it's really good. You'd go there. No, I'm just kidding. But around that corner, that's in the south. That would be the southern. But you, over there, over yonder, there's the tomb. David's tomb. We see it. We know it. He can likewise point to Jesus' tomb. And over there is the tomb of Jesus. But there's a difference. One was empty. One was full. We need history. Like David, Jesus died and was buried. Yet unlike David, his tomb is empty. And so there's a problem with Acts 2.28 even. Acts 2.28, he says, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. It's a problem. David died, was buried, and like all in Adam, returned to dust. So is the Bible wrong? Or with our own reason, should we think of a, oh, well, this just really means David here is just a picture of uh, the nation of Israel. It will never, it will always be on the earth or something like that. But that would be our own reasoning. You see, we need more than just history. We need more than grammar. What Peter is telling us here, we need Christ. We need Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 30, 31, being therefore, uh, David, Peter says, being therefore a prophet, David being a prophet, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned. It's Jesus who wasn't abandoned to Hades. It was Jesus who did not see, whose flesh did not see corruption. Now, there are two important things we must notice in this text. Peter is saying because he's a prophet, notice here, because David is a prophet, he can foresee these things. Because he's a prophet, he could foresee the future. Because he's a prophet, he knew Christ. Right? Inspired by the Spirit. He could see Christ. But look closely at the text. With the Holy Spirit, he could see Christ. But how did he see Christ? He saw Christ because God had sworn with an oath. He saw Christ as a prophet, but through the word. Do you see that there? As a prophet, reading the word, hearing the oath of promise, an oath of God, he knew that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. Now, what is the oath here? The oath is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. The oath is this, that God would give David a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. He foresaw, what Peter is saying is that David foresaw the resurrection through the word. The Holy Spirit gave him a right understanding of Bible. He read it grammatically. He read it historically. But more importantly, he read it Christologically. Christ was at the center of Scripture and David knew it. You see, if we fail to read the Bible with Christ at the center, if we fail to read the Bible Christologically, then, we're, then, there, then it's trouble. 
I think of Jesus with the Pharisees, right? In John 5, Jesus chastens the Pharisees for searching the Scripture. I always find that interesting. He condemns them. You search the Scriptures. And he says it in a very condemning voice. And you're like, well, what's wrong with that, Jesus? Aren't we supposed to search the Scriptures? He says, no, you search the Scriptures for principles to live by. The Pharisees wanted to preach dare to be like Daniel sermons. The Pharisees preached sermons like, here's, how, here's the five ways to defeat the Goliaths in your life. And Jesus says, no, those scriptures are about me. And you fail to receive life because when you go to the Old Testament, you don't come to me. You go to the law. But it's the law. It's the word. He says, Mo Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus. David knew Jesus. On the Emmaus Road, when the disciples were all gloom because Jesus just died and, and Jesus appears to them and they don't recognize Jesus and they're all in their gloom and they're moping about. And then the, on the Emmaus Road, Jesus begins on the Emmaus Road to explain himself through the Old Testament. And it says there in the Greek that he explained himself from the entire Old Testament. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim. That is, the whole Bible. And as he explained the whole Bible to them as it is Christ-centered, and when he started explaining the gospel from the Old Testament, their eyes opened and they saw Jesus. The gospel gives life. It is Christ that gives life. And in this way, when we find Christ in the scriptures, it is in this way that the Bible regenerates. It is in this way that the Bible becomes the, the, the word of life, the truth to life. And in this way, it's our sanctification, that pure milk of the word that strengthens. It is gospel. It is Christ. Now, what specifically is the oath that God swore? Well, I've said it already. It's 2 Samuel 7. It's the Davidic covenant. But here's an important fact of Scripture. This 2 Samuel 7 Davidic covenant, it's not just a random covenant, but it is a covenant bound to other covenants. And notice the text. It says God swore. Is that interesting that God swore? God took an oath. When you read the Bible, you know what you find? You find that God is an oath maker. God is an oath maker. The Bible actually begins with God making an oath. He actually made an oath in the garden with Adam. And just like, and listen to this, just like that second Samuel Davidic covenant was promised a throne in the garden, God promised Adam a throne. He promised Adam dominion. He made Adam after his own image and likeness to fill the earth and listen and subdue it and exercise what? Dominion, power. He is to be the king under God, the king of kings. Adam was to exercise and earn that Sabbath rest, that Sabbath throne room with God, eternal rest with God. And there in the garden, he was supposed to exercise the vengeance of the Lord against his enemy. And when that serpent came on, rather than exercising that vengeance, exercising that judgment, exercising that justice, he fell to pride. And plunged humanity into the valley of shadows of death. But there, in the fall, God came, that oath maker, 
He came with another oath, did he not? And he promised that Adam's greater offspring would reign. That, great, that greater offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And then God elaborated that covenant with Abraham. Our father in the faith, Father Abraham. And there he showed to Father Abraham that covenant would include his offspring. And that God would be God to him and his offspring. And he signed and sealed that covenant with a sign and seal of circumcision. And then he promised to David. He extended that promise to David that a king would face the full threat of circumcision. That there would be a king. God would not stay the knife from his hand like he did with Abraham and Isaac. But he would fully meet the cross. And there defeat the enemy. And there receive the resurrection of the kingdom. You see, this oath lies behind all of Scripture. It is the gospel that foreshadows all things in the Bible. It is the gospel that foreshadows the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. It is the gospel that stands behind and binds the whole of the Bible with its oaths and its promises. And we find here in this oath that the key to understanding Scripture is Jesus Christ. And Peter said in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and that we are all witnesses. And of that we are all witnesses. And like this, and as they witness Christ raised up in history, we must witness Christ on every page of Scripture. Jesus is the yes and the amen of Scripture. The Alpha and Omega. And so Jesus directs our reading. The, guys, the gospel leads our theology. If you do not see Christ in all that you do as a Christian... In your sacraments. For example, baptism. If baptism is simply you bringing strictly your obedience to the font, then you know what you're bringing to the font? Strictly your obedience. But if you come to the font in the weakness of a baby, with nothing before God, then there in that place you are overcome, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. It's gospel. You see, the prophets had one job. Friends, the prophets had one job. The Bible has one job. The word and the sacraments have one job. Ministers have one job. Worship has one job. Everything Christian has one job. And that is to lead you by the hand to Jesus Christ. And Reformed Christians, we use covenant theology to do that. We use covenant theology to center our understanding on Scripture. Now the question is this, where does covenant theology come from? That's a good question. You don't see the phrase covenant theology in the Bible, but where does it come from? It comes from the Bible. Look at Acts 2.33. Peter writes, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you see covenant theology there? I do. The Bible helps. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. What is the right hand of God in Scripture? I said it already earlier. The right hand of God is what? Power. The right hand of God is power. It's eternal life. Adam failed to be exalted at the right hand of God. Adam failed to receive that Sabbath rest. And he did not receive the well done, good and faithful servant. He received condemnation. God held out for him the sacramental tree of life. He never grasped it. He never earned it. It was never signed and sealed to him because he sinned. He failed to climb the mountain of the Lord. Paul writes in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death has spread to all men because all sin. God told Adam to fill the earth, exercise dominion, subdue it, and so forth. He did fill the earth, but not with the glory of the Lord. He filled it with sin and death. And then guess what God did with that covenant? He republished it with the house of Israel. And like... Adam in the garden, who did not exercise vengeance on that serpent when he spoke those false words, right? He didn't exercise vengeance. Israel did not exercise vengeance when the serpent entered the promised land and spoke the false word, but they gave heed to the word. They gave heed to the serpent. They gave heed to the offspring of death. Here, Bibles, turn me to Hosea 6 7, an Old Testament prophet. It's an important text for covenant theology. Hosea 6, 7. If you're into highlighting Bibles, this is a highlighted, this is a life verse. I just declare it. This is my new life verse. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably have a different one. My life verse, Bible. Hosea 6, 7. Hosea, the prophet writes, but like Adam, they transgressed what? The covenant. Israel, like Adam, transgressed what? An oath. A covenant. There they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. Works principle. Do you see the works principle? They were to be faithful. They were to destroy the serpent. They were to hold the promised land. They were to exercise justice and judgment. They were to do this and live. It's the do this and live principle. Do this and live. This works principle is the reason for Christ's exaltation. I know you're thinking, Pastor, where are we going with this? Now turn to Philippians 2.8. You have to highlight this verse. I know some of you highlight the whole Bible. I see your Bibles, you open it, it's just all high. It's like, whoa. I thought highlights were supposed to emphasize certain texts, but then you highlight the whole thing. <laughs> but I understand highlighting the whole thing because I think it's all inspired. It's just highlight. When I get a Bible, that's what I do. I just get highlighters, I start highlighting. <laughs> Philippians 2.8. Listen to this. And being found in human form. This is Jesus. And being found in what form? Adam form. Adam means what? Human. And being found in Adam form. In human form. What did he do? What did Adam do in human form? What was the fall of Adam in human form? Pride, right? Look at this human form. In being found in human form, Adam form, he humbled himself. You hear that? Jesus humbled himself. How so? Works principle. By becoming obedient. 
to the point of death. Obedient to the point of death. And what did that obedience get him? Verse 9. Exaltation. Therefore, merit, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He fulfilled the covenant of works, the second Adam, the true Israel of God. And he has earned the name above every name. And we see the same therefore in Isaiah 53.10. You can jump over to Isaiah 53.10 if you're quick enough, but here we go. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of Yahweh to crush his son, to put him to grief. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He was obedient. Isaiah is saying he was obedient to the point of death. Verse 12. Therefore, God highly exalted him. But the language is kingly here. Both languages are kingly. Highly exaltation. But listen to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with his people. Dividing the spoils. What kind of language is that, people? What do kings do when they destroy their enemy? They collect the spoils of war and divide them with their generals. And the generals pass it on down to the, to the rest. It's kingly language. It's all exaltation through works. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we find here in our text. Highly exalted, therefore Christ pours out the gift, the greatest gift, the greatest treasure. He pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit that he himself earned by being obedient even to the point of death. Exaltation theology. How does the Bible end? The Bible begins with a sacramental tree of life. Do you know how the Bible actually ends? With the tree of life. It's perfect bookends, is it not? The Bible beginning with the tree of life, it ends with the tree of life. The first Adam never secured the tree of life. Christ has secured eternal life. You see, Jesus is the true king of scripture. Acts 2.34, for David did not send into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David didn't send the mountain of the Lord. He didn't have clean hands and a pure heart. This is covenant of redemption stuff. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to God. Yahweh said to his son. Yahweh said to the son of God. David didn't earn his place of glory. Like him, like Adam in the garden who let the enemy stay in the land and overcome the land. Like Israel who let the enemy stay in the land and overcome the land. When David died, guess what? He left behind his enemy. Not Christ. Acts 2.35, until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ will leave no enemy behind. You see, Jesus Christ is now... Filling the earth, exercising and subduing, subduing and exercising. Christ is now having dominion over the earth. But as he told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he is exercising. He is filling the earth with his word and sacrament. He is filling the earth with his church. And it is the power of the gospel that conquers hearts and divides lives.
This is exaltation theology. Exaltation theology begins with a call to worship. Exaltation theology begins with a call of worship and obedience. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know. Peter says, after he quotes and preaches this sermon, he's concluding his sermon, he's let, let the house of Israel know. Know for certainty. Exaltation theology leads to certainty. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you have crucified. Look at this. Exaltation theology begins with God. God has raised him up. God has made him. Exaltation theology is the crowning of Jesus Christ as Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings. He is Lord of the covenant. He created the covenant. Jesus is actually the oath maker. As the Son of God, Jesus is the oath maker. He stands above the covenant. He created the covenant. He wrote the covenant. He stands beyond the covenant. But as Philip, but as Paul writes, though, however, but he humbled himself. He became a servant. Jesus is both Lord of the covenant and servant of the covenant. He is the servant. He not only is the oath maker, he's the oath taker. He has fulfilled the oath. He has fulfilled the promise. He is the one who answers back to God perfectly because the garden scene, friends, the garden scene leaves work unfinished. And there's a call in the garden that's left unfinished. You know when God calls out to Adam and Adam what? Hides himself? God says, where are you, Adam? And in sin, he's afraid and hides. Yet Christ finished the work with his last words on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Friends, those are covenantal words. He has completed the oath. He has done the work necessary. And therefore God raised him from the dead. And in his resurrection, Christ answers back to God. Where are you? Jesus says, here I am. And here are the people you have given me. They are yours. And there we find eternal life. We find eternal life in the exercise and work of Jesus Christ. We find eternal life in the first fruits of the resurrection. So we lift up our hearts to God. We lift our hearts to Christ. And we know for certain that we are the Israel of God. Christ has earned for you a kingdom and glory and forever. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the alpha and omega of scripture. So we turn every page of his word and we turn every page of his word expecting to see his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's how we handle the Bible. We come to church to hear nothing less than Christ and him crucified. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.